0: A light topic for this Sunday morning. From uh, from megachurch pastors and movie stars and political figures, it seems like nowadays uh, adultery is such a common thing that it really it hardly shocks anyone at all. Uh, Everyone likes to talk about scandal. But most of the time, our senses are dull to the impact of them. Um, Is anyone in the room really shocked uh, by anything that happens in the world anymore? Um, As a culture, this this word from God, you shall not commit adultery, seems to hold little value anymore. Uh, The prohibition against adultery... It seems outdated, especially in light of how marriage has been redefined in the past decade. When anything goes, it's hard to know what's right and what's wrong. And who gets to decide? Does the government get to decide? Does God get to decide? Does our denomination get to decide? Does scripture get to decide? The culture is confused and is full of the blind leading the blind, especially concerning fidelity and marriage and relationships. And our perceptions of marriage and relationships and what it is and isn't considered adultery, it's been skewed. Excuse me. What's worse is that the world out there and the church and here no longer look much different. It's not a big deal anymore for Christians to live together before marriage. Couples feel like premarital sex is a testing ground for compatibility. And I have friends that profess to be Christian yet no longer think twice or have any conviction from the Holy Spirit over sexual sin in their life. <clears throat> We have no-fault divorce. We've made leaving rather than staying easier and easier and easier. Meanwhile, the church has been assaulted over its view on sex and sexuality, and the United Methodist Church is the latest casualty in a battle over its views of sex, and specifically homosexuality. As a church, we've done a poor job of teaching a biblical sexual ethic, And it's left us reeling for direction. On the other hand, adultery is no more prevalent today than it has been in the past. Um, It's always been an issue for humanity. And it's evident from just reading the Bible. The Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, is inundated with people who abandoned fidelity to their spouse and betrayed their family. Church, when when people and culture no longer see the horror of infidelity or the destruction that unfaithfulness places on people and society, then we become an uncivilization of our own nearsighted, pleasure-seeking entitlement. Scripture says, you shall not commit adultery. But why is God so adamant against it? Let's say that a couple who's married decides to have an open marriage and allow extramarital affairs. What harm's done if both parties agree to it? The prevailing view of so many things today is that if two people agree and no one is harmed, then it's okay. But if your view of marriage is just an agreement between two, or nowadays more, consenting adults, that I'm afraid you do not have a biblical worldview of marriage or its sacramental value and importance in Christianity. A biblical worldview sees marriage and sex as a holy union, a union not just of two people, but a union of two people and God all together. And in a biblical worldview, God is central and at the center of the marriage, and he decides the terms of the covenant of marriage. And the world shouts, it's our body, and we can decide what to do with it. But God declares that our bodies are not our own, but that, in fact, they're the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Scripture says that we are the very temple of the living God, both individually and as a community of faith. So we're not just physical beings, but spiritual as well with the soul. This collective body, mind, and spirit is the way we were created by God. And to violate one part is to violate them all. We can't separate one part of our being from another part without great consequence. We were created in the image of God. And as creator, God knows what is best for creation. He authored life, and therefore he knows what will produce, create, and bring forth life. We want to decide for ourselves how to live and what to do with our own bodies. As if we were the creators and not the created. God says, I know what will truly bring life, and adultery will not. The biblical worldview of marriage and adultery sees marriage as a covenant between the man and the woman and God. And when marriage is viewed that way, then adultery is a violation of the marriage covenant and a violation against God as well. The biblical worldview of marriage expands to the whole community in which the couple lives. And adultery violates that covenant with the community and threatens the very fabric of that community. So the law of God in the Old Testament said that those who were caught in adultery were to be killed... Because in the act of adultery, not only was the marriage threatened, but the whole community surrounding and upholding the marriage was weakened because of the broken trust and the broken covenant. The death penalty for adultery seems harsh and very extreme (laughs) for us today. But it's because we've dishonored and dramatically lowered the value of marriage and the value of fidelity. We've devalued the holiness and the sacredness of sex to an animalistic, uncontrollable urge. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see a beautiful passage of Scripture that speaks to the advantage and the dignity of sex within marriage. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The covenant of marriage is a lifelong journey. To be naked and unashamed. And not just physically. It takes hard work. It is only in a covenant of trust and faithfulness that two people can begin to peel back their layers and be seen for who they truly are without shame. This is the longing we all have physically and metaphorically speaking, to be naked and unashamed. It's also one of our greatest fears to be naked and ashamed. How many of you have had the dream where you're sitting in school and you're naked? Or you're going to go public speak and you're naked? Or you're about to be at a meeting at work and you find out you're naked. It's terrible. But in a marriage covenant, we learn to be naked and unashamed. It allows us to be vulnerable with our spouse. And throughout the Bible, the image that's often used about the kingdom of God is the marriage of Jesus to his church. Revelations 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And Revelation twenty-two seventeen says the spirit and the bride say come and let everyone who hears say come and let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. And in this metaphor is the image that the bride, the church, you and I, are called to be pure and spotless that we're called to be faithful so that we can experience the joy of the kingdom undefiled. In a sense, we're called to be naked and unashamed before God, to return to Eden before we sinned, and to walk with God without shame. Adultery brings shame into marriage, the last place shame should be allowed to exist. Adultery breaks the framework of marriage. Trust. Not just for the man and the wife, but for the children, for the church, for the community, and for one's relationship with God. It is in this view and in the light of the heart behind this seventh word that Jesus also spoke about adultery. I can imagine the Jewish scholars and the people sitting around listening to Jesus And I can see the shock in their faces when he spoke these words out of Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. He says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who has looked at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's interesting that Jesus is just addressing men in this context. Because men typically are the problem. But it also applies to women as well. Jesus is going beyond the physical act of committing adultery to the actual heart of the problem. Adultery begins in the heart and moves to the loins. Remember how Jesus spoke that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And Jesus is explaining the internal longing because the physical act is simply an outflowing of a heart condition. We must be diligent to do the heart work and be reminded of the covenant we made in our marriages. Ellsworth Callis states that our generation, more knowledgeable about sex than any generation in human history, may well know less about the fullness of sex than its predecessors. Perhaps the worst thing our easy sex culture has done for us is to caricature sex, to make it one-dimensional. We rarely have a chance to explore the spiritual side of this most intimate human experience because our culture doesn't really grasp that it exists. We grope after it in our romantic songs and our sentimental stories, but rarely reach it. The reason that God gave us this word, this instruction, this command against adultery, and the reason Jesus expands on this word is because of the problems adultery causes. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fill us. It robs and empties everyone involved. This seventh word, don't commit adultery, flows out of the heart that God wants the best for us. All ten of these words, these commandments, are for our benefit. Not to limit life and living, but to give us true life and true liberty. But I also know that adultery is ingrained in families. I come from it. It touched my own mother and father. It touched myself. I've been its victim in two previous marriages when adultery on my spouse's part affected myself. I've been its victim and so I promise you this is not something I speak of crassly. It's not something I speak of often. It's embarrassing. Even to be the, the victim of adultery and not its perpetrator is embarrassing. But I stand before you today as someone that's experienced it in my own family. And I say I can, I can guarantee you that I, I understand and appreciate the value of faithfulness and fidelity. I appreciate it. It's not something I take for granted. Even in a room this size, the the pain from adultery is, is still real in many of our lives. But the good news is that God forgives. The good news is that God heals The good news is that in spite of our shortcomings, that Jesus has offered a solution to start over and receive forgiveness and grace. But don't be deceived, we still pay the price in this life for our infidelity or the fact that someone betrayed us. I want to end with a story that captures the heart of Jesus for a broken world. It comes from the Gospel of John. Jesus had just come from the temple early in the morning to teach with some religious, when some religious leaders, they brought forth this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now understand, these religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus. That's what this whole thing's about. Jesus has a crowd of people all around him listening to him teach. When this group bursts in and interrupts, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery, they say. And they make her stand there in front of everyone. Now, can you imagine the shame? But right now, several questions should be coming to your mind. The first, I'm wondering how this group of zealots actually caught her in the very act. Should maybe have been her husband. But how did all these men catch her in the act? Secondly, where's the dude? According to the law, it takes two to tango. You can't have adultery with a single participant. So why isn't the man dragged before Jesus too? And as I said, these religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus, to ask him, according to the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? You see the trap? If, if he says, don't stone her, then he'll, they'll condemn him for not following the law and that he shouldn't be a teacher. If he says, kill her, then he's just like all the other religious leaders and his kingdom message really doesn't stand apart. But Jesus knows that this interaction's not about adultery. He knows that this whole thing's a setup. This woman was just a pawn in their religious game. So what's Jesus do? He ignores them. He stoops down and starts writing in the dust. And John doesn't tell us what he writes. However, there is a passage in Jeremiah 17, 13 that says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. They're trying to bring this woman to shame. But it says in Jeremiah 17, 13, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, I don't know for sure what Jesus wrote, but a common thing in Jesus' preaching is that if people reject him, they reject the Father. And most of the Pharisees precisely did this. And Jesus had just previously been talking in John seven thirty-eight about how rivers of living water would flow from within those who believe in him. But regardless, I'm sure there was this awkward pause... As they're waiting for him to say something. So they keep on pestering him. So Jesus finally stands up from writing in the dust and he says these words to the crowd Let anyone among you who's without sin be the first to cast this, the stone. And then he bends down again and writes in the dirt. And the text says that one by one they went away, starting with the oldest. What a scene! Can you imagine? And I think in those moments of pause and silence and questioning, these religious leaders were enlightened to their own unfaithfulness and calloused hearts. And then it says that Jesus and this woman were left alone. So he straightens up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, No one, sir. And Jesus took her and says, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin. It's a powerful moment of grace and forgiveness and instruction. In Jesus' statement, I hear a plea to this woman. Don't enslave yourself again in adultery. Don't live a life that will only condemn you to misery. Go and live as a free woman, not in adultery. Life in the beauty and the majesty of God's grace and freedom. These 10 words, these 10 commandments that we have before us are for our success and our life. And they were given to the Israelites to help them learn how to live as free men and women after 400 years of slavery. And they're given to us as well to teach us how to keep from going back into slavery. Let's pray. God, I thank you, like I've thanked you every week, Lord, as we've been on this, these topics, these 10 words, Lord, these commands, these instructions. Lord, I thank you for not only freeing us, not only setting us free, because, Lord, freedom in itself without any instruction can be a dangerous thing. Left to our own devices, Lord, without any instruction on what to do with that freedom can lead us right back into our own slavery and right back into addiction and right back into destruction. So, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you were gracious, Lord, not only to free Israel after 400 years of bondage, but, Lord, to free us through the power of Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross, Lord, to free us, but then also, Lord, not just to free us, but to give us instruction on how to stay free, men and women. Lord, I pray, Lord, anyone in this room, within the sound of my breath, that has been the victim or the perpetrator of adultery, I pray, Lord, that there'd be no condemnation. Lord, that there would be repentant hearts, because, Lord, we know if we turn to you, there's freedom. That you're not a respecter of persons. Lord, that there's no sin too big that you can't cover. And, Lord, while we may be responsible and there may be consequence, I thank you, Father, that there's also forgiveness. I thank you, Father, that there's also grace. I thank you that you're a good God, that you're a good Father, and that in you there is no condemnation. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If our ushers would come forward this morning for our tithes and offerings.